Welcome to episode 162 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. And today we have somebody who really loves going out under the stars. Joining us as a guest, we have Mark Radici from Refreshing Views, which is uh, a website and a YouTube channel. Uh, welcome to the show, Mark. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your, uh, your online presence and what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. I'm, I'm looking out the window. It's a beautiful blue summer's evening in England. And I guess you guys have just got up. It must be, what, breakfast time in Canada? Just past, yeah. Yep, yeah. And it sounds like we have a similar weather day. It's uh, blue skies and sunshine here, too. Yeah, I've been, I've been fascinated because when I listen to your podcast, we think we have it bad in England. And I and you know the weather's always changeable and it's always seems to be wet and cloudy. And then I listen to what you guys have to go to with forest fires, record levels of mosquitoes, minus thirty degrees, plus thirty degrees. And I think, oh, maybe we don't have it so bad in England after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a perfect spot, you know, to do to do astronomy in the world. Maybe there's some that are better. You know, some of the I think some of the southern U.S. states like Arizona, you, you know, it's not bad. It's dry. It, I think they're usually cloud free, but, you know, I guess they have the extreme temperatures uh, uh, as well. Um, but, yeah, I guess we just deal with it and it sort of becomes normal after a certain amount of time. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So, well, thank you for having me. Um, I run a YouTube channel, which is really just more of a hobby. You know, it's something I do for, do for fun called Refreshing Views. And I've always been interested in astronomy. I can't imagine anyone not being interested in astronomy. Uh, and there are so many imaging and photography YouTube channels. But what I felt, you know, was what I like to do is go outside and actually look at the night sky to actually go and see, you know, things on the moon or deep sky objects and sketch and actually have that experience. So I'm still learning and still trying to work out how to make that come across in the video. And for example, last weekend, we went to the UK's biggest star party, which is up in Kelling Heath, up in Norfolk. So a few hours drive around uh, on the other side of London from me. And we had a wonderful time, you know, observing two or three nights, few, few cloudy, few cloud patches. But yeah, had a really great time. So thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah, this is our pleasure. Um, how, how many people attend that star party? It must be a few hundred, a few hundred, I'm guessing. So it's quite big. Yeah, and yeah, then there's cool. trade stands and secondhand sales, and and normally there would be talks, but obviously this year no one wanted to be sort of inside in the same room as other people. Yeah, that, that's similar to our uh, large summer star party. We we have a few star parties in the province uh, throughout the year. The largest one is the Saskatchewan Summer Star Party in Cypress Hills, and uh, we I think there's usually about 300 astronomers that will show up for that. And same thing, usually there's talks, but not, not this year. It was just, yes. uh, you know, observe and, and that was kind of it. So, um, but that's really what you're there for. In my opinion, I, I sometimes never attend the talks anyway, because I'm too busy sleeping, trying to catch up on sleep from the night before. Yeah, we can, but hope. But I actually made my first sort of proper astronomical observation in, in your part of the world. Well, oh. a few hours down the road in St. Catharines in Ontario, oh. near Toronto. Yeah, I, I used to live not too far from there. Did you? Whereabouts? Where's home? Where was uh, home? Well, from? well, I I lived in. I'm I'm from the east coast, but uh, but I lived in uh, the Kitchener Waterloo area for a while, which is just about like maybe an hour and a half north of uh, yeah. St. Catharines. Yes, yeah, so we. I worked at a boarding school, so I left school at 18 and didn't want to go to university, and so I went to and got a job at a boarding school in St. Catharines in Ontario, and we okay. had a talk from Terence Dickinson. Okay, the, yeah. the, the writer, and he came to the school and gave a talk. And he said, this is a, going to be amazing. He said, this is, you know, astronomers wait for, for decades for bright comets to come around. And two, two came around at the same time. So we had Hayakataki in 1996, and then Hale-Bopp the following year, 1997. Yeah. So yeah. I got a pair, borrowed a pair of binoculars and, and found, you know, found the plow and worked out how to find these comets. And yeah, that's, that's sort of really what kicked me off as a sort of an active observer. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, I'm sort of the same. I started observing about then and uh, actually listening to Terence Dickinson uh, talk and 
And he actually wrote a column in uh, in the I think it was a Global Mail or the Chronicle Herald, something like that here. And uh, yeah, you, you could you could kind of print out or or, or cut out the uh, the star charts that he was he was talking about. Really cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, what's your what's your main telescope, Mark? What what do you like to observe with? So I have a Celestron C11, which I bought secondhand from a from a chap in the astronomy club, and he gone down that classic route of trying to use an F10 instrument for astrophotography for imaging. And then he realized actually he was using it as a guide scope while the wide angle short F ratio telescope was on top with the camera attached. And it was actually the world's most expensive guide scope. So he put it up for sale and uh, I snapped it up because I really love looking at the, well, I love all of it, but I really love looking at the moon and the planets. I love the solar system imaging, the very fact that you've got this dynamic world and features that are coming and going. And then a few years ago, I, I melted my credit card and paid for a, uh, a shed to be built, you know, with a roll-off roof. So in our old house, we modified, friend, a couple of friends, we modified a just an ordinary B&Q shed, just an ordinary you know, home improvement shed, and made that into a roll-off roof. My, my wife took the kids away for the weekend. And so I booked them in and, and uh, she was absolutely furious when she got back. She said, you've done what in the garden? And there were two posts <laughs> sticking out the ground. Um, so we really enjoyed that, but it, I really love it because it's got the convenience. So when it's, you know, it's a night that's a bit iffy or it's night that's, yeah, can you be bothered? And you think, well, I'll just pop outside for an hour or two. And you don't have, you know, it takes me longer now to put my coat on and make a cup of tea than it does to, to set up. And then more importantly, when you're tired and you're ready to come back in, all you got to do is put the dust covers off dust covers on, roll the roof back, and, you, and you're back inside five minutes later. None of this. You know, put the tube into the garage, put the mount in, put the counterweights in, roll up the extension cable, put the chair and table away. You know, it's, it's just brilliant. It's heaven. I love it. What size, what size is your roll-off observatory? Oh, quite I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think it's 12 by 12 with a little Hold warm on. room on the side. So, yeah, it's, we had a good plot of land that I cleared my luckily neither of us are into our gardening so when we bought the house there was a greenhouse there so we gave that away to a friend and then i converted the, the plot of land and it's been a lifesaver because for the last well i don't know what it's been like in your part of the world but certainly when we've had two two or three lockdowns now over the last yeah. year mm -hmm. and we've got two children upstairs you know homeschooling doing trying to do their lessons online my wife and i both trying to work and so luckily i could use the warm room as my you know, work office uh, while oh, we cool. were doing that. So it's been a bit of a lifesaver over the last year. Not that we knew that, of course, when we had it built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How dark is it at your uh, at your location there where you have your roll-off? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not too bad. I can't complain because we, we live in a village near Salisbury, which is not a big town anyway. Um, but there's you still got neighbours' lights and there's still street lights. And, yeah, there's a... Um, it's a big sort of army military training area on Salisbury Plain. That's where the army go and train. And so you still got all the towns and the garrisons and stuff. So it's better than living in the big city, I can imagine. But, you know, when I go to places like Kelling Heath or when we go up onto Salisbury Plain itself, that's where it's proper dark, you know, and you get away from all the streetlights. So, you no, know, I mean, I, I'm, you're probably going to laugh at me now, but, you know, I say it's not too bad, but you can see Coma Berenices and you can see the beehive cluster. And, okay. So, yeah, so I say, well, it's not the best. And people say, what? Do you see the beehive cluster from your garden? You know? Yeah, that's that's decent. That's kind of like the town I, I grew up in. Yeah you, yeah, you can you can see those those brighter. You can probably see like Andromeda, maybe naked eye. Or yeah, 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 that's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. Oh, so wow. what do they call that? I don't know, green, green zone or something like that. I guess it would be yeah. on the sky rating. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, you can see the clouds in the Milky Way, like, you know, Scutum cloud and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So yeah, so that is nice. yeah, the Cygnus Lane. So, and when we used to live in the town, so we moved out here a few years ago. You know, there was there literally was a street light behind a tree at the end of the garden that shone into the shed, oh, and I had to I bought some wooden boards and had them sticking up on on poles, so just to try and block off the street lights. So at least I had a little bit of shadow. <laughs> you nice. know, I, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast or not, but um, the the house that my wife and I currently own. Um, we, we, prior to buying it, we probably looked at over 50 other houses, um, trying to find the right one. And we had a list of, you know, must haves and another list of deal breakers. And on my must have slash deal breaker was like, it has to have a, an observable spot, like a place to set up a telescope 
and I have to be able to see the southern skies and preferably also the eastern skies. And um, so, like I say, we were looking at dozens of houses and we were very picky. We were not finding anything that met our criteria until we found the dream house. It was perfect. It had everything and then some, except to the south was a street light right at the end of the driveway. And I said, sorry, hon, <laughs> we, can't, <laughs> we can't buy this house. And uh, um, we're still married, so that's a good thing. And uh, we found another house that, that met a lot of the criteria, but I can relate, you know, having a, having a, a spot in the yard to observe is important and, uh, and you do what you have to. And, and, you know, especially in the city, nothing's perfect, but um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, setting up a, a few light sort of blocks or, or, you know, shades really can improve the the backyard observing too. And I always say that, you know, it could be worse. I could be in the pub. At least you know where I am and I'm not, you know, I could spend a small fortune. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I barely drink anymore because I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> they say, isn't it? Get your kids into astronomy, they won't have money for drinking drugs. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's really cool. I I've been watching your videos, and uh, yeah, it it's amazing to to see somebody else actually talking about visual observing um, in, in the digital age because it although. It seems very popular now for people to have, you know, new uh, YouTube channels or podcasts, either about astrophysics or astroimaging or a little bit of both. And then kind of the, the visual stuff just gets tagged on at the end. If you're, if you're lucky, uh, a 45 minute podcast might have three or four minutes of, of visual observing content. So your, your, your presence is well named refreshing views, I thought anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, congratulations on, on the channel. Very neat. Oh, thank you. Well, that's what I, we're so lucky to have a hobby where we can go outside and see these things for ourselves. You know, we're, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent. You know, if you're a fossil hunter or a historian, you can't go back and see these things for real. Yet we can wander out into the garden and I'm trying to think back to the observations. Well, I did one called observation of earlier this year, which was the globular, the big bright globular in the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, yeah. G1. Yeah, I saw your yeah, video. Yeah, G1. Yeah, very and cool. it's well, they reckon it could be a globular or it could be the core of a galaxy that's been swallowed up by yeah. the Andromeda galaxy and it's lost all its outer stuff. And regardless of whether it's a galaxy or, or the core of a sorry, a globular or the core of an ancient galaxy, I was thinking that's amazing. We can actually go out and see this firsthand, you know, there it is in, in the night sky, and, and it's so much better than just you know, watching telly or being on TikTok or whatever kids do these days. but you know, I find it very, quite literally, a, a refreshing view. You know, you've gone out and see this stuff firsthand. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I, I saw how you hunted it down, and I and first off, I only know one other person who hunted it down, and they showed it to me, and that person is Shane. Um, <laughs> so to mention that, but uh, but you hunted it down using Sky Safari in instead of uh, Star Chart. So um, yeah, I was just kind of curious about about your method actually for finding stuff in the in the nighttime sky because I noticed that that you're using um, more the, the digital assisted technologies than, than I do, for example. So I just wonder if you could kind of tell us about your process of finding stuff and then maybe we can talk about some sketching. Oh, sure. So I keep a little list on my iPhone of interesting things that I want to look at. And that's made up of things on, you know, for example, the Herschel 400. I'm still, still years later working my way slowly through that. And I go through it with tremendous enthusiasm and then get bored of endless star clusters in Cygnus or endless faint galaxies in, in Virgo. Um, but I also read the forums and read the magazines and you think, oh, that looks like an interesting target. I haven't seen that. So I maintain this list uh, of things I want to go and look at in, in whatever, when the, we've next got a nice clear sky. And so I, use, I still have my star charts, and I still use them when I've got my binoculars, for example, if I'm using my tripod-mounted binoculars. And so I still know how to star hop, but I, do, I must admit, having Sky Safari and linking it over the Wi-Fi to the telescope does make things so much easier. Because you say, right, I'm going to say I'm going to look at the Ring Nebula, for example. Well, first of all, I'll swing it over to the nearby, what's it, Vega, and you point it to point telescope to Vega, line it up, centering the crosshairs, brilliant align, swing across to M57, bang, there it is in the eyepiece. And what would take, I know that's quite an easy target to find with a bit of practice, 
But what used to take a while to hunt these things down now takes yeah, a matter of seconds. And the other good thing as well is when you do a big long go-to is you can then put your eye to the eyepiece and it's like being in a spaceship because all the stars go whizzing past and you can then just <laughs> follow the eye, eye along. So you sp- do spend more time looking. I find I spend more time looking at an object now than I do hunting it down. And then I'm trying to think of, you know, I used to call it my nemesis objects. There's a thin edge on galaxy at 891. Oh, up in Andromeda, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Very low surface brightness. Yeah. I really struggled to find it. And I didn't know if I was looking exactly at it using my paper charts, wasn't in the right yeah. place. Yeah. Go back, start again. Yeah. And of course, with Sky Safari, if you've done the alignments, bang, there it is in the center of the field of view. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can then cross-reference the stars. The star charts are always rotated to the right field of view. You can overlay it with circles. So I've got an eyepiece view and I've got my finder view. So it, it does. And then, of course, because I'm using a diagonal in the C11, you can then just press a button and it flicks it left to right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, it makes things so, so, so much easier. If you, if you want a similar galaxy now that you've seen that, okay. go for, go for <laughs> because that 891 is like classic um, for being so difficult to spot the first time. And then what's strange about 891 is once you've seen it, then it's, it becomes kind of easy to see in a way. I don't know if you've gone back and revisited it at all. Yeah, I don't know what you mean. I'm going to see what you put up on the screen. 4236. This is. Four, yeah, NGC 4236. This, this is my new NGC 891. Your new nemesis objects. <laughs> yeah, this, I don't know if you've seen that. It's up in Draco and uh, it's part of the M81 group. Okay. So it's, and it's pretty close to M81 and M82. And so the really frustrating thing about this object is the field is very easy to find. So the field is super easy to locate. So you think, great, no problem. I've got the field in the finder or whatever. But then seeing the object is, it's maddening. <laughs> anyway, I'll just and throw that one out. I learned that when I was starting out, is that you're sorry, you say trying to find M33 in a pair of binoculars. Yeah. And it says magnitude eight. Is it magnitude eight? Something like that, isn't it? Six, and you're looking at it and you're going, I I can't see anything, there's nothing there. And of course, it's spread out over such a large area that although it's a you know, relatively bright magnitude, it's really hard to see. Yeah, so this is only 10th, and and you think 10th magnitude and an 11 inch that's going to be easy, but yeah, I I thought I saw it in my in my four inch, and then I uh, I had uh, my friend uh, Mike's 12 inch uh, the next night. And we hunted it down and, and it seemed like it was more difficult in the 12 inch. I mean, it, it, it's just this maddening object. I don't know why it's so difficult, but, but it's, it's a little low right now, of course, because in the evening, Ursa Major and Draco are, are fairly low. And this is right above the bowl of the Big Dipper asterism. So, uh, so maybe as, uh, as winter kind of swings around, um, could be, could be a good object. Brilliant. It's on the list. It's gone in the phone. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but I also, right. do you find it, because I like to write things down and put things in my logbook, that I remember observing objects because, you know, the situation. So um, I always have objects that, you know, some of these nemesis objects, some of these challenge objects, I think, ah, oh, that was a night, you know, I saw it with so-and-so. Do you, do you get that as well? Because if you log things down and record them, you have that association. How about you, Shane? Yeah, yeah. You know, I like when it comes to logging, um, I don't do it enough, but um, if, if, you know, my memory isn't very good. So if I'm not logging and writing down objects uh, like your nemesis objects or, or just my, whatever my observing project might be, um, I, I do have a tendency to kind of forget if I've actually observed something or not and, mm. and what it looked like. So, um, you know, I do like to sketch, not sketch, but, uh, like I have a notepad with me typically at the eyepiece and I do like to jot my notes down, uh, about what I saw with the object as well as, you know, eyepiece and any filters that may have been involved. Um, uh, I like the idea though of the nemesis list. I don't actually have one. I just have a number of, you know, various kind of lists that I am working on. And, and uh, one, of, one of these projects may turn into an entire list of nemesis objects because uh, 
Um, it's the, uh, the Omira hidden treasures list. He, he observed all of this stuff with a four inch refractor from, uh, Mount Kilauea, uh, somewhere on Kilauea, I think on the big Island of Hawaii. Uh, so a very dark place. And I was trying to do some of this stuff, uh, or trying to see some of these objects, um, just last weekend, uh, not far outside of our city, but very similar conditions to what you described, Mark, uh, in your backyard where, you know, you can see the Milky Way overhead. Um, you know, the, the sky is probably a green zone. Um, and I couldn't see any of these Omira objects. They were invisible to me. So I, I think I, I will need a very dark sky. And even then I'm, you know, I'm kind of questioning whether or not I'll, I'll see this stuff as well as I'm hoping to see. And you obviously need a trip to Hawaii then. Well, you know, if that's what I have to do, then I, yeah. I guess that's what I have to do. Yeah, you have no choice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've gone so a, few, a few years ago. Oh, sorry, Chris, go on. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. I was going to say, a few years ago, we had a trip to Tenerife. We had a club trip out to the observatory on Tenerife up on the mountain. Oh, cool. And, of course, we were a lot further south. I think it was 28 degrees north. So a whole load of southern stuff was suddenly nice and high up in the sky again. But what really made a difference was just the altitude because suddenly we were at whatever it was, two and a half thousand meters, and you could see the clouds underneath with all the humidity. So we were up in the dry zone, and that made such a difference. One, one of our club members, he, he didn't like the drive because it's literally straight up the mountain, and it's all switchback, 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 yeah. all the way up this mountain for, for ages. And he said, oh, I can't face driving up tonight. I'm going to have a chill out back in the hotel. And he lent me his 80-millimeter S6 refractor, and I had that with a 31 millimeter Nagler, Nagler eyepiece. And oh my goodness, on a dark sky, uh, you know, up in the Canary Islands, on top of the mountain, looking through Cygnus and down into Scutum and Sagittarius. Oh my goodness, are there a lot of stars? Wow. Yeah. That would be amazing. Um, uh, you know, the, the altitude really does make a difference. Um, I've, I haven't even noticed that around here. Um, you know, our, our province is quite flat. It's, you know, a lot of agricultural land, but the further East you go, you gain quite a bit of altitude and, and it really does make a difference, uh, mm -hmm. a substantial difference. What are you looking up there, Chris? This is, I went here a few years ago in 2015 and these are the, uh, oh, let's see, the, this is the pan stars telescope. You hear of the, uh, the uh, pan stars comet that, that was discovered. And then this is the new big solar telescope on uh, Haleakala. There's, there's a gate here. And so if you wanna observe here, you have to make uh, previous arrangements. You can see there's a gate here and there's a gate here. And the gate here goes down to a military institute. And so I was told to meet a certain person at a very specific time. Do not come one minute early and do not come one minute late, I thought. And I, actually we started, talking before this, this recording where I said, oh, I'm always like five minutes early. They were like, no, no, don't come early. I'm like, what's the big deal? So I show up like maybe a minute early to meet this guy. And I show up here. And then as soon as I park, I can see this guy walking from here this way. And this gentleman is carrying a gun. <laughs> and <laughs> the re what, what happens up here apparently is that you've got... Um, it's a secure military facility. And they were just coming over to check if I had my pass or not. <laughs> but I was like, whoa, this is getting kind of scary up here. So anyway, um, yeah, I was able to go up and observe in, uh, in behind the Pan Stars uh, telescope just with uh, my binoculars. They had some other telescopes there and, and that sort of thing. But that's at 10,000 feet. And that is um, into that zone where your, your brain stops functioning um, as well as, as you would like it to. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, not bad skies up there, is it? Looking at those pictures. Yeah, pretty wild, eh? Yeah. So let's see. Let's talk about sketching. So I, I was looking at some of your sketches. I have to ask, your, some of your sketches are, uh, they look like white chalk or white charcoal on black paper. So, so you, yes, sir. I was, I've always sketched traditionally with, you know, the conventional black paper, black pencil, sorry, on white paper, the, the, the ordinary way, if you like. And a few, yeah. it last month, I met a, a, a space artist, an astronomer artist, and she was showing me how she draws on with black paper and white pastels. Okay. And it really makes a difference. It's a much more natural way 
of drawing. So I've started taking that on. I'm still trying to get used to it because, of course, it's a different medium, a different approach. But that means you don't have to then convert it on the computer, make a negative image. And you literally are drawing what you can see. Yeah. So, you know, rather than trying to do it the other way around, which is, which is a harder way, if you, know, if, you, if you want to put a bright galaxy in, then you just put more and more white pastel on and then smudge it with your finger. So it's a, it's a much more natural looking medium. So I'm still getting used to that and still quite enjoying that. That's good fun. Cool. Have, have you looked up, uh, and, and I guess you seem new to it. I, I, I haven't tried it. Well, I've tried it a little bit a long time ago um, just for sketching the moon, but haven't tried it as much on on deep sky objects. I was wondering, have you looked up like the Mellish technique or anything like that? Yeah, so that's what this lady was telling. This is Mary okay. McIntyre was telling me. Yeah, so you, you, you file a little bit off onto a piece of sandpaper and then using a blending stump or the cotton buds, you can then apply the dust as if you're, uh, you know, building up layers. So yeah, using white pastel dust. Cool. So what have you sketched so far using that uh, technique? So... I've practiced, uh, what have we done? So we've done the Ring Nebula, did that the other day, and the M76, the little dumbbell up in Perseus. Uh, what else have I done? Oh, and the big one I did at Kelling, so we had a good night, clear night on the Friday, was the whole of the Sword of Orion. So I borrowed, run, take my telescope out of the observatory, take the mount off, take the counterweights off, and then have to obviously set it up there, then bring it back and set it all up back in the observatory. I borrowed a friend's telescope, borrowed a little wide-angle 80 millimeter apo and with that you could get the hold of the sword of orion into the eyepiece so that was quite cool and then also the north american nebula and doing the cygnus wall cool. and you can see it you could see the curve of the sort of central america region in the north american nebula and then the brighter part of the cygnus wall with it with the filter so i did that that, that took about that that took far too long about an hour and a half cool i i noticed that you it looked like I watched part of that video. Actually, I watched the whole video, but for whatever reason, I could only listen to some of the sound. Uh, I was doing something else. And uh, I noticed that you're also a BinoView uh, user. Were you using the BinoViewer to do those sketches? So, well, we have this tremendous tube. So I've never experienced dew like this. It was because it was about a mile from the sea, a mile from the coast. And the dew was something else. I mean, it was, we could have been in the rainforest. Everything was just dripping wet. Oh, wow. And my friend didn't have his dew heater. So we were actually swapping a dew heater from my eyepieces to his. So I had to swap. I had a spare 20 millimeters. So, <clears throat> so without the Binovia. But it's the sort of Iran I did with the Binovia. And I must admit, it is such a lovely way to observe because you get to use both eyes. Mm -hmm. you you is a much more natural way you're not trying to cover one eye and squint you do i'm guessing it maybe lose half a magnitude or something like that but i think you gain a lot back by that sort of sheer comfort and the pleasure of using using both eyes yeah yeah i'm glad you mentioned that um i'm just getting into binal viewing again i i tried it once before and i really I really I don't. I thought you tried it three times before, Shane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, two or three times for sure. And the thing is, is, is I really didn't try in either of those attempts. You know, like I, I, what I should say is I've owned a Bino viewer multiple times, and I really didn't use it enough uh, to to really get a good feel for it. So this this current run at it, I've committed to basically Bino view exclusively. Now there's a few exceptions to that. And uh, I've really been enjoying it. Um, now, I've only done it in the backyard. I haven't done it under a dark sky yet. Um, so that, that'll be the next test. But I tell you, in, in the backyard, it has extended, extended the amount of time I, I do spend observing. Like, I don't think my sessions are any longer. It's just during that session, I'm observing almost 100% of it because the comfort level is so much better. Like I don't have to take a break to like just give my eye a bit of a rest because you're squinting, you know, the whole time. Um, it's just a wonderful way to observe. And uh, I'm I, like, I, I, I think this might be the way I, I just proceed on a go forward basis is primarily final viewing. Yeah, um, I definitely find it less fatiguing. Yeah. And, and you have um, what? What kind of vinyl viewers do you have? Because the ones you have, I don't, I, I think they don't, like you don't need a, an optical corrector, like a magnifier or Barlow or anything like that, do you? Yeah, that's right. So if you look up, um, it's called a Technosky, a linear Bino viewer. Yes. 
and I bought mine uh, from Telescope Express in Germany. And yep. yeah, the, you're right, because of course, you when you put your eyepiece in the focuser, it's where it needs to be. But then of course, if you put the BinoViewer in, you've then, your eyepiece is now whatever it is, 100 millimeters further away. So you'd, normally you'd put a, a corrector in to bring that up. Mm -hmm. uh, so there it is, where's the picture? Somewhere in there. But the the beauty of these BinoViewers is you don't need therefore that optical corrector to, to bring, bring the eyepieces into, into focus. Now, is there any, uh, I think I've, I've read some reviews about these bino viewers. Is there any, is it light cutoff or, or is there vignetting that, that, that happens with these? I can't remember. So, the, so there's two, there's two shortcomings I've come up with so okay. far. And the first one is that if you look at anything pretty bright, you do get a lot of reflections in there. Okay. So when I look at say Jupiter or Vega, you know, you, you can see the reflections bouncing around inside the binovia inside the binovia but it's like anything with a bit of time you, you sort of you, your eyes can look past it but it's not very pleasing but looking at a dimmer star field or a deep sky object you don't get any reflections at all and the other constraint you have is that you it's only is it's it's exit pupil if that's the right word what do you call it the diameter that the light comes into is yep. only 17 mil so you can only use, so I have two sets of eyepieces, the 90 millimeter panoptic, which get vignetted down from 68 degrees down to, I don't know, guessing about 50. Okay. So, but again, when you're looking with both eyes, of course, it feels much wider than that. Yes. And then when <laughs> I, I've got, I've got a higher power version of 30 millimeter naglas and that, but they aren't vignetted because they are less than 70 millimeters Mm -hmm. uh, it's not exit people what's the word I'm looking for when you have a the aperture that the light comes through I can't remember what it's called do, now do you mean like the uh, like the field stop diameter field stop that's the one yes field stop diameter is 17 mil yeah I, I renewed my nerd card last week so yeah. it's, it's still fresh <laughs> well you passed the test Chris that was there, there we go yeah I sorry I just I couldn't find your your sketch uh on your site. I, I know it's fairly recent. It might not be up yet. Um, I actually did the same sketch <laughs> recently. There's my sketch of the North American Nebula from October 10th. So I had a question for you guys, and you obviously enjoy using smaller, more portable telescopes. So, so why, I can't help but thinking, but well, you must like very dim views then. <laughs> that, I guess that's, that's, fair. that's a fair assessment yeah, <laughs> yeah. next topic <laughs> so i guess you're trading you know if you've got the whole of the north american everything you've obviously got a very wide field of view yeah yeah so so this is sort of a refined sketch actually i sketched the whole star cloud but then when i you know I took it inside afterwards it's it was sort of difficult i i couldn't figure out how to differentiate the glow from the star cloud and the glow from, from the nebula. So when I sort of, this is sort of a final sketch. I'm not a very good artist or anything like that, but you kind of get the general shape and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to put the North American nebula into sort of my, my final uh, sketch there. But um, what I'm going for anyway is, is two things. I'm going for um, really wide fields of view. I really like wide fields of view. I know you, you've got the uh, Canon 15 by 50 IS binoculars, I think, which those are amazing. My friend Mike has those and uh, I steal those quite frequently. I've made tons of observations with them. I, I love those for wide field of view. And then um, Shane helped me put this little 50 millimeter telescope together for getting these, these super, super wide field of views. But I also have uh, a Takahashi uh, uh, FC100, which is a four inch uh, F7.4. And that telescope gives nice wide field of view uh, mm -hmm. as well. And it's, and it's super light. It's only uh, five and a half pounds the way I have it set up. And then um, I've got a Borg five inch Apochromat F6, which weighs seven and a half pounds. So um, yeah, I just really like those wide fields. And here, here in Saskatchewan, it's so dark. Like, you know, where, where we observe, which is in, um, well, I was, I observed primarily like in a darker green zone or like a 6.3 magnitude zone and can see pretty faint stuff. Um, from there and, and typically like a sixth, getting close to a sixth magnitude site is, is only a 15 or 20 minute drive away at most. So oh. uh, port portability and ease of use. And then the other thing is, 
is it gets so cold here in the winter that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that uh, we're able to, you know, uh, go and get set up really quick and tear down quick. And the cool down time on bigger instruments is um, a huge hindrance. Like sometimes when Mike brings his 12 inch out, we get stuck uh, waiting for it to cool down. And we'll just, we've spent nights just observing through like my, my four inch or five inch because his telescope never cooled down enough. Uh, the whole sky just looks like jello through it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. right? So, so anyway, that's yeah, that's go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, that's one of the big reasons why I got rid of my 12 inches. I found that many nights it just never it never cooled down like it never acclimated to the ambient temperature uh, because the temperature just either declined really quickly or just kept you know going down 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 and then the uh, almost knocked over the Saturn rocket here I got to stop <laughs> talking with my hands <laughs> that, that could have been fatal yeah yeah but, um, it's like Apollo thirteen all over again <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so um, how cool does it get then so I'm thinking back in England then. A cold winter's night would be maybe minus five, minus five degrees Celsius, minus 10 degrees. Minus 10 would be pretty cold. It gets further, you know, if you go further north in England, up to, you know, or Scotland. But well, in the heart of winter here, if we had a minus five degree night, we might observe in a t-shirt because <laughs> we're, we're usually... That's party night, is it? Yeah. yeah like the, the downside, so... If it's a clear night, then then there's no clouds to you know kind of insulate or keep some of the heat in. On a on a clear night in the middle of winter, I would say it's typically minus twenty to minus thirty degrees. Um, if we're lucky, that that's when we go observing. If it gets yeah. colder, we don't. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it is colder. And and here because it is flat prairie and there's not a lot of trees, the wind is what really gets us. Um, mm. You know, you add a wind chill on top of that and. And uh, winter observing becomes a little more challenging. So yeah, the, the smaller telescopes are, are nice for that. Um, you know, and there's another, there's another aspect about small telescopes that um, I kind of like unintentionally maybe discovered for myself um, and unintentionally still do occasionally. But um, if I take my little 50 millimeter out and I try to observe Jupiter for the evening, um, you know, I will see some detail in the cloud bands, you know, it won't just be colors. Like I'll be able to see some fine detail. Uh, I shouldn't say fine detail, but some detail. And I feel then after observing with smaller apertures for a period of time, and then going to a larger one, like my 76 or my 100, I feel like I'm twice the observer. Cause it's like, wow, you know, look at how big everything is and look what I can see now. And I don't know if that actually does help with the observing skills or not, but I feel like it does sometimes. And, um, you know, I, it definitely, definitely uh, lets me appreciate uh, the larger apertures, especially when, um, you know, one of our friends like Mike or uh, a few other right. folks that yeah. have bigger apertures, when they bring it out, uh, like I love looking through it. I, I, I do love aperture. I just like it when somebody else owns it and yeah. goes to all the trouble of hauling yes. it and setting yes. it up. <laughs> the best big bulb is somebody else's, isn't it? It so, is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's, there's almost, Everyone says go for aperture. Get the biggest aperture you can afford. Aperture is king, but certainly budget. You know the cost of it, and yeah. what I call that sort of ease of use, that logistics side. They're definitely the king makers. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think back to have my little fourteen-inch Skywatcher Dob, you know, and hauling that into the back of the car, you know, to drive up to Salisbury Plain, and then and then of course coming back at three in the morning and having to put it back in the back of the car. And, oh no, my poor back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But there was, there was talking of um good views. When we were at Kelling last weekend, there were two binocular telescopes, homemade binocular telescopes, uh, that people that had. One was a seven-inch pair of Maxutos, and one was a six-inch pair of refractors. I'm I'm really really excited here. I put this in the notes because it looked like to me, and I could be wrong, but they looked like Matsumoto um, uh, mirror diagonals on the back of these sevens. Yeah, the yeah the EMS erect was it mirror system or something? It's called. Yes, that's right. Yeah, how, really good views. We looked at. I always wanted them. to look through those. How? Yeah. What did you guys look at? And uh, how, did they, at, how did they? Look well, there on? was a, there was a big queue as you can imagine for a pair of seven inch binoculars, and we looked at Jupiter. And you could, even though the scene was pretty cruddy, you could you know see details between the start between the bands on Jupiter, wow. and then M eighty two as well. Um, and again, 
but going back to that point we had earlier, you know, being able to look with both eyes, so pleasing, so much better for the, you know, the eye-brain combination. Really good. I mean, yeah, really good. And what was the uh, the other one? I, I guess I missed. Uh, you said there was a, a six-inch um, refractor binocular telescope as well. Can you tell us about That's that? That's right. Yeah, there's a guy called Ez Reed who's sort of quite well known in the UK astronomy community, and he put these binoculars together. Uh, using a whole series of diagonals, you know, uh, one, one, one and a quarter inch diagonals to bring the optical paths together. Okay. So yeah, so poor man's Matsumoto's. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen those before, and uh, I've always wondered, you know, how effective that would be. In fact, there is a I was considering uh, like the fifty millimeter Borg that I sold to Chris. I was considering turning that into a, a binoscope, but then mm. just uh, stopped the pursuit because I felt like a fifty millimeter binoscope probably wasn't going to impress me that much but you know uh, a six inch that that's different I, yeah, I said. <laughs> yeah cool I, I have a lot of questions about your observatory i don't i don't think we're gonna have enough time i was looking at your your recent video on building a, a concrete versus steel pier though and it looks like you you ripped out the steel pier and you put in a concrete pier and my question is why <laughs> The steel pier, although it could take the weight, wasn't flush to the floor. Oh. So I tried putting some, you know, obviously when it was made, it obviously bows slightly at the bottom. Mm. Uh, when it gets welded, you know, the, the metal plate gets welded to the, to the vertical pier. And it always used to slightly vibrate if you, if you touched the telescope or slewed or adjusted the focus. So it wasn't very stable. So although it could carry the weight, the compressive load of having the big telescope and the mount on. So I looked around at getting a, you know, more sturdy pier, one that you could bolt down more securely, but they're hundreds of pounds, you know, 500 pounds, whatever that is. Yeah. They're like a thousand dollars Canadian yeah. starting. Yeah. And then, yeah, I'm team bags of cement paid the builder in, you know, a little thank you as well. And, you know, it was a fraction of the price. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I noticed I, I watched, I watched that video. I didn't listen to it, but I was watching it and there, there was a part where you were, you were digging out the air gap or whatever it is between the, uh, the bottom of the pier and the, uh, and the observatory. So I was wondering, was that like insulation? Do you have anything between the observatory and the, uh, and the bottom of the pier and sort of what, what is below the pier itself? So when they built the observatory, they dug uh, a three foot by three foot hole straight down. And then around that have built the, you know, the wooden floor. Yeah. So there's an air gap or whatever that is, half an inch, 12 mil around the, the concrete floor. So that as you walk around, you don't, your, the vibrations of your feet don't go into the, into the concrete pier. So do you have like, do, do you, do you have anything in that gap or do you just leave it open? No, no, just leave it open. The only thing I have going in there is the drain port from the dehumidifier. Oh, okay. And it just trickles out. Okay. Yeah. I, I and, noticed. And, and 10,000 spiders live down there. And <laughs> there's a dust cap or two that's, you know, when you drop a dust cap and it goes, oh, God, it's <laughs> straight down again. <laughs> and you can see it, but you can't get them out. So, you know, I have to go buy some new, more replacements. You need to get one of those claws from the, uh, yeah. <laughs> from the game, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised. Uh, well, I guess not that surprised. Um, you, you were, you were at the star party and you were talking about the dew heaters selling out. I, I remember those days uh, quite well from living near the ocean. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy how much dew there, there can be. I was, I was back home and, and we were having, we we're going to have a really good night and the sky was clearing off and the sun was about an hour from setting. And, and the dew was already forming. <laughs> mm. You can always taste it. You know, when the humidity rises, you can yeah. feel the humidity just rolling in off the sea. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just nuts. I, I don't, I don't miss that. So we, we don't have uh, humidity here very often. Um, it, it's a, it's a rare event so much so that I threw my, I threw my dew shield away when I moved here. So, oh, wow. <laughs> Well, I had it and I was putting it on and someone said, what is that? I'm like, well, it's a, it's a, dew, it's a dew shield. It, ex, you know, it helps keep the dew off the optics. They're like, why would you use that? You know, like people are just baffled by it. Right? <laughs> so after, after a few weeks of observing, I was like, you just, you don't need it here. It's just, it's not necessary. So yeah, we're, we're lucky that way. But, 
but we're unlucky when it comes to the, uh, the real cold weather. So, so yeah, well, I think we have, we have uh, probably just a couple minutes uh, left, Mark. I didn't know if there was any, any other topics we uh, should touch on. Yeah. So I took, I started getting more and more into planetary lunar and planetary imaging over the last few years. And I've been helped out by a, one of the UK um, observers, Martin Lewis as well. And of course, the, the planets have then disappeared into the far southern sky. And last October, November time, I think it was, I recorded one, one of my most, well, for me anyway, one of my most memorable observations of Mars. And I went into work the next day and I said, I photographed five volcanoes last night. And they said, what do you mean you photographed five volcanoes? I said, oh, sorry, they were on another planet. <laughs> <laughs> and again, what? I said, oh, you know, there's Olympus Mons, a volcano on Mars. So I photographed that, and there's, there's two other smaller ones alongside and a couple of smaller ones. But what I really liked about this, this observation was that there was actually a little white cloud appearing over one, I think it's Arcea Mons, one of the smaller, fastest volcanoes. And as Mars slowly rotated, you can actually see the white cloud as the winds took it, stretching across the you know, the, the, across the Martian surface. Yeah. And I thought, here I am with this second-hand telescope in the garden in southern England, watching clouds forming over a Martian volcano. And That's I incredible. thought, that, that is pretty cool. That, and, and really, really good imaging. I, um, this is years ago when I had my observatory in the backyard in a tracking mount. Um, I was doing a little bit of imaging, and I, you know, I briefly tried solar system imaging and quickly gave up because uh, I just didn't have the, uh, I don't think I had the right equipment necessarily and certainly not enough knowledge to do it. Um, so when I see images like this, uh, like I really appreciate how, you know, how good this is and, um, you know, the, the effort that goes into it is, is outstanding. So do you do video uh, captures and then grab the, the better frames and stack that's right. them? Yes. Yeah. 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 So you, you, you're relying because the atmosphere is naturally turbulent. So that's why mm. all these professional astronomers spend so much money putting observatories on mountains and, in, and up into space. Mm -hmm. So what we're relying on is brief random moments of clarity of, of still air. And the video camera just records away how many hundred frames a second. And then you reject all the blurry ones and stack the sharp ones one on top of the, each other. And in that way, you can then process that up and, and reveal all the fine details inside. But you've rejected all the ones that have been blurred by, by the Earth's atmosphere. And I look online and you look at people who are, you know, imaging down in the tropics, you know, Australia and South Africa and the Philippines. I think, God, Jupiter's just barely clearing the treetops here at the moment, you know, whatever it is, 20-something degrees. Yeah. And we had one night in the summer this year where the air was just still. You know, there was no, hardly any turbulence at all. And I thought, ah, this is what people talk about when they say, this is good seeing. And you can actually see details inside the great red spot and, and surface markings on Ganymede on Jupiter's moons. And I thought, ah, this is this is pretty cool, and yeah, you got the picture there, haven't you? So that was so. But that's Ganymede, where your mouse is now, and you can see yep. there's surface markings on it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can and, see that. That's nuts. That's so. That's. Cool. I mean, isn't that amazing? This is with a second-hand telescope in the garden in England. Yeah, you've got the great red spot, and you can see the little storm clouds inside the great red spot, yeah. and that black dot just above it—that's the shadow of Europa. Europa is actually in front of the disk of Jupiter. It's sort of hidden in the cloud belt. It's a and then top left is Io, and Io reappeared from behind Jupiter. And I made a little time lapse of this as well, so I observed for about two or three hours, you know, just recording two-minute video, two-minute video, two-minute video, two-minute video, processed wow. them all down to single frames, and then you can play them back as a time lapse. And you can see Jupiter's clouds rotating. You see, you know, Europa disappear as it passes over, then the shadow, then Ganymede comes in, then Io reappears from the back. And, you know, this three-hour video, or this three-hour observation I reduced down, you know, you've got real solar system dynamics happening in real time in front of the eyes. Incredible. Uh, outstanding imagery. Um, one yeah, that's because you haven't, I haven't sent you the bad ones though, Shane. That's the best <laughs> one. That's the best one. The other fair, ones fair I haven't really. <laughs> well, you know, um, when I, when I observe Jupiter and, uh, you know, visually, and I, I take in as much as I can, 
Um, what I like to do the next day is go to uh, Chris Go. Um, I think he observes out of the Philippines. He um, he images Jupiter uh, an awful lot and then posts it online. And um, oftentimes he'll have an image, you know, of of, of the night that I was out observing, uh, assuming it was clear and he was able to get out. But you know, it's a really nice resource to kind of contrast or, or to compare what I saw with my eye to what was actually visible that night. But and and like the like Chris is well renowned for having really really good image quality and and yours is right on par like there's no difference in my mind like your your images are outstanding. Well, thank you. That's very kind. If I'm on the par with someone like Chris Gay, that I'll I'll take that. Even yeah. half the half the success <laughs> would be quite. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he we we use um, atmospheric dispersion correctors when the planets are, are low down. You get this sort of blue and red fringing. So you mm -hmm. have to dial in these prisms to, to correct for that color dispersion. And then you find people in Australia and, and the Philippines say, no, nah, don't bother with that. The planets are overhead. We don't, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're going, oh, I can only image Jupiter briefly because it appears from behind the tree. And there they are. <laughs> you know, it's overhead. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we do need to move to Tenerife. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the, the other side of this is when the planets are high enough for us, it's wintertime and then it's yes, cold and it's yeah. miserable. And <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no perfect place, as you say, isn't it? We, you know, when we go to Tenerife, we really enjoy that. And then you look, La Palma at the moment, you can't, they can't observe, you can't fly there because the volcanoes are erupting. Mm, yeah. Back to the volcanoes. Yeah. yeah so it's. Uh, Always back to <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, that's that's really awesome. I think we're we're pretty much uh, at time, folks. It was really great having you on, uh, Mark. And uh, if people want to want to check out your YouTube channel, what's the best way for them to find it? So yeah, if you go onto YouTube, it's refreshing views, and it's deliberately designed to be sort of informal, good fun, enjoy observing the night sky. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed watching your videos and it was really awesome chatting with you today. So thanks for joining us and uh, thanks Shane and thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Really interesting. I say enjoy that minus 30 degrees observing. <laughs> <laughs> and at least there's mosquitoes, I guess now at this time of year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the trade-off. <laughs> Great. Thanks again. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>